Hello, everybody. It's Anthony Harris again with our new episode of our podcast, Looking Back, Moving Forward. Um, I'm especially grateful today and looking forward to sharing with you some thoughts about just what that term means, looking back, moving forward, because today I'm going to talk about uh, a little bit of the past, and some of this is repetitive. I've talked about it in some of my earlier episodes on my podcast, but I want to revisit some some thoughts about uh, the Jim Crow days, the days of uh, legalized segregation in my hometown of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And Hattiesburg, Mississippi is representative of most cities across the, the South, large and small, where Jim Crowism, white supremacy, systemic racism were the, the rule, not the exception. And it was something we lived with on a daily basis. And for many of us, particularly youngsters, we just thought that was the way things are. That's just the way things were. And um, there was no point in, in thinking about anything else because as kids, we were out having fun and playing and, and doing those kinds of things. The adults in our lives, our parents and, and other uh, meaningful adults in our lives, um, they knew something was wrong. They knew something needed to change. And thank God we had those um, civil rights warriors and icons. I include my mom, Daisy Harris, as one of those, Mr. Vernon Damer, Mr. Medgar Evers, and the list goes on and on. Um, just people who sacrificed so much in, in the 60s and even prior to that time. I just can't leave out Miss Fannie Lou Hamer as one of those icons as well. So I, I want to revisit some of the times back in the, the 60s and, and segregated not just segregated Mississippi, but segregated United States of America, because Mississippi was a part of the U.S. And, and if we're talking about something that went on in, in Mississippi, it is reflective of what, what's going on or what went on in the, in the entire country. One of the things that really stuck with me was, was school segregation. I'm going to talk about school segregation and school desegregation. Because in 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court in the Brown versus Board of Education decision said that this notion of separate but equal was unconstitutional. And of course, that was a repudiation and a repeal of, of the Plessy versus Ferguson decision that came from the United States Supreme Court in 1896 that said that... Uh, Races could be separated, black people can be separated from white people as long as the, the facilities were equal. And uh, that was just a, um, a fallacy because you can't be separate and equal at the same time. So in, in 1954, the Earl Warren Court, uh, in, a, in a major um, decision, um, has changed the, the scope of and, and the trajectory of, of education and public education in this country in 1954 ruled that that old Ferguson, Plessy versus Ferguson uh, law uh, or ruling was, uh, was null and void, a new um, standard, and that is that uh, black kids uh, could not be separated from white kids in the public schools and, and vice versa because the facilities were not equal. And just by definition, you can't be equal and separate at the time at the same time. So I was educated in, in segregated public schools in Hattiesburg for most of my um, time as a public school student. 
beginning with first grade, kindergarten and, and first grade. We didn't have public kindergarten back then. We started first grade. And uh, my first grade teacher was Mrs. Jackson. And, and I, I just have so many memories of Mrs. Jackson. She was a self-disciplinarian. And the reason I want to share this with you is because what I'm talking about is the norm. And this was, this was how black teachers helped to mold us. Um, you know, the, the intent was uh, through segregation that black kids would somehow receive an inferior education, a less valuable education, a less beneficial education. The fact of the matter is that despite all of those uh, resources and, and funding and materials and textbooks and so forth that were withheld from us, nevertheless, we had some really, really strong black teachers who I always say they taught from the heart. They didn't just teach from the book. And Mrs. Mrs. Jackson was one of those who was a, a strict disciplinarian, as I think a lot of black teachers were at that time. They they were strict, and they they believed in um, uh, um, spanking. They believed in um, you know just enforcing you with with uh, licks on the on the rear end or some kind of way to get your attention. But you know that's the way um, the school was. And I'm sure it was like that, probably that way in, in, in white schools as well, that teachers were strict disciplinarians. And again, my second grade teacher was Mrs. McGowan. And I've shared this story so many times, but it's just, uh, I want to share this anecdote with you to illustrate just the level of commitment and the level of, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but later on I realized the level of, uh, of concern and um, insistence that her, her students would, would, would excel academically. Ms. McGowan was, again, my second grade teacher. And I remember this day, uh, we were in school and she gave us a homework assignment to take our workbooks home and, and do some work in those books. And she gave us the page numbers to, to do that work. So when I got home, I dutifully sat at the kitchen table and started doing my homework. And I had a glass of red Kool-Aid right there by my workbook. And somehow that red Kool-Aid spilled onto my workbook and the pages stuck together. And I was unable to complete Ms. Gowan's homework assignment. When I got back to school the next morning, I knew something was about to happen <laughs> because after she made, uh, she took up lunch money and, and Mr. Stegall, our principal, made his announcements, it was time to get down to business. And, and, and after, she, after we did all of that, Ms. McGowan would say, boys and girls, put your notebooks out on your desk. I need to see your homework assignment. And as she was saying that, she slowly opened her desk drawer and her middle drawer in her desk. And I knew she was not going there to retrieve chalk or pencil or an eraser even. She was going to retrieve her attention getter. Now, as Miss McGowan walked up and down the aisles of the of the classroom, she would, you know, just demand that we put our workbook on the on our desk. And not only did we have to have the the work completed, but we had to have it done uh, accurately. It was not enough just to have some some figures or some words down on the page. Those figures and those those words had better be. Uh, the correct ones. So she would go up again, go up and down the aisle, and then she got to me, and she said, "Harris, uh, son, where's your your homework?" 
And I knew that it would do no good whatsoever to say, Miss McGowan, I really wanted to do my homework. I almost had it done, but I, I spilled red Kool-Aid on the, the book and it pages stuck and I couldn't do it. I knew it, do, it would do no good to, uh, to give her that excuse. So what I did, as, as I've seen many <laughs> several times with my classmates, I just simply gripped the top of the desk and I knew what was coming because with her attention getter, she came across my back with three licks, just pow, pow, pow. And I grimaced each time, and I, I just felt these salty tears rolling down my face and across my lip. And nobody in the class laughed, nobody chuckled, nobody made fun of the fact that I had just gotten some licks on my back. And her weapon, I say weapon, but her, her attention getter was actually a broken fan belt. Yes, a broken black fan belt. You know those things, they're kind of thick, and they're pretty sturdy and they can inflict pain. And after I, I, I finished that, went home, and, and there were some more assignments that we needed to do in the workbook. And because of my aversion to pain, I made sure that from that point forward, I would keep a glass of red Kool-Aid or anything else I'm drinking far enough away from me that I wouldn't spill it. But you know, after I became an adult, because at the, well, at that time, I thought Miss McGowan just mean. Something was just mean and hateful for her to treat me and, and treat my classmates that way. I just thought, oh, this is somebody to be feared, you know, just and what could I do? Because I wasn't going to go home and tell my mom and dad, and I knew if I did, they weren't going to do anything. They weren't going to go up and threaten to beat up the teacher or file a lawsuit because back in the day when the village was strong, uh, parents... Um, looked at teachers as, as the experts. They, they, they knew their role in the village was to educate us and to provide discipline so that we could become educated. So they, they deferred to the teacher when it came to matters of, of discipline and education. And they did not substitute their own views uh, and, and go up and, and try to have a confrontation with the teacher. So after I became an adult, I... I I had an occasion to go back to Hattiesburg, and I went to visit Mrs. McGowan. I was so glad she was still around. And I asked her if I could just chat with her for a few moments, and she said, sure, baby, come on in. And, and as I began to tell her the story of what happened to me, that was many, many years ago. Of course, she had no recollection of it, but I, I, I saw the look on her face where she said, oh, baby, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean to hurt you. Please forgive me. And, and I, didn't, I didn't mean any harm. And, and I said, no, Miss McGowan, I, I, I didn't come here for an apology. I didn't come here for that at all. Instead, what I came here to do was to say thank you. Thank you, Miss McGowan. Because at the time I was getting those licks, again, I thought you were a pretty mean lady. I thought you were, uh, were hateful. You just didn't like me. And, and you were just taking that out on, on my back. And I said, now that I'm an adult, I now have a different perspective on that. Uh, while I don't condone uh, that kind of uh, treatment of students, that kind of treatment of students should not happen anymore. But I said, you know, it, it made a point, and I think your point was to your black students, was that you will excel. You will not accept excuses. You will not accept um, mediocrity, those are just, those, those are not options for any of us. We were going to have to excel. And, and I think ultimately you said, you will excel. 
uh, even if I have to beat it into you, you will excel. And I just said, now as an adult, I get that because it's so important because, you know, so many of us listen to you and, and, and our other teachers and we heard what you uh, were trying to say to us. We, we internalized that, that confidence that you had in us, the challenge that you, you gave us, the support that you gave us. Uh, that we were going to excel, and I just am so thankful. So anyway, that was sort of typical of the way our teachers were back then. You know, they were strict disciplinarians. They were educated, mainly women. But, you know, they, they wanted us to succeed because they had been out there in the world, and they had seen the effects of, of racism and, and racial discrimination and they were determined that their, the students that they taught were going to have more opportunities or at least better opportunities than they had uh, when they went through the public schools. So I, I think about the, those days of segregation when uh, that, was no, that was no option. This, even though the Brown decision came in 1954, I started first grade, I believe, in, in probably 19... 60, 19, yeah, probably 1959, 1960, and schools were still still segregated. Uh, basically, the South said, we're not, we don't care what the Supreme Court said, we're not going to desegregate our schools. In fact, the state of Mississippi, um, the legislature created what was called the Sovereignty Commission, which was tax a taxpayer-funded effort on the part of segregationists and, and the Mississippi legislature to, to thwart the efforts to desegregate uh, in Mississippi, particularly the public schools. And this was a, a group of uh, clandestine um, people who went around very surreptitiously gathering information on, on black leaders and keeping tabs on people, keeping dossiers and, and files and, and all these kinds of things, trying to identify those individuals who were involved in the civil rights movement, those individuals who were working working against their purpose. Their purpose was to maintain segregation, and they were out to identify and marginalize and even punish those people who were working for the end to segregation. So that was one of the efforts that Mississippi engaged in. Another effort that Mississippi engaged in was it repealed its compulsory school attendance law in 1954. And they basically said that we'd rather kids not go to school at all than have to go to school with black kids and white kids in the same schools. And that was a, a legacy that continued for many, many decades and generations because, you know, you, you can't, if you're not in school, folks, you can't learn. You know, I'm sorry, but you just can't learn. And, 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 and there's so much to learn. There's so much in the world. There's so much knowledge to, to gain by being in school. And if you're not there, you're, not, you're going to miss that knowledge. You're not going to have that, that information you need to be um, to, to, to participate in our democracy and, and provide leadership and do all those things that, that uh, education is a foundation for. So Mississippi distinguished itself in those two ways. It, it um, created the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, and it also repealed its uh, compulsory school attendance law. Again, that, that shows you the links that the individuals who ran that state, those segregationists, the links they would go to to maintain segregation. And governors like Ross Barnett and Paul Johnson, you know, these were 
these were staunch, staunch segregationists, and they it was in their DNA. I think they were they were akin to Lester Maddox in Georgia and George Wallace in Alabama. So getting back to what it was like, I, I, I made it through through the elementary school. I was my third grade teacher, and I remember all of my teachers. My third grade teacher was Mrs. Mrs. Lewis, uh, Miss Lewis. She was not married at the time, but Miss Lewis. And um, my fourth grade teacher was Mrs. Fowler. Uh, my fifth grade teacher was Mrs. Thelma Harris, who was related by marriage to me. And my sixth grade teacher was uh, Miss Inez Lee. She she was one of my favorite teachers. And I can I just have so many memories of, of that time. I remember in the fifth grade is when um, President Kennedy was assassinated and we were at school. And I remember Mr. Stegall, the principal, uh, had the radio broadcast of that, that whole news story piped into the, the PA systems in everybody's room, all the teachers' rooms. So we were able to listen um, as it was developing the reports about the assassination of President John Kennedy in Dallas in November of 1963. And I can remember very vividly our teachers being very upset about that. Some were, were in tears and bawling out in the hallway because, as we all know, President Kennedy was, was regarded by, by the black community as, as an ally, as, a, as an advocate for equal rights. And his assassination in the eyes of so many, um, the attempt of, of that whole thing was to try to um, turn back the hands of time, trying to stop President Kennedy and stop the movement for equal rights, just trying to stop it with that assassination. Well, I moved on after after sixth grade, and I, again, so many memories of, of being at Mary Bethune Elementary School. That's where I was, Mary Bethune Elementary School, and 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 just being with those those black teachers. And of course, I I had no other frame of reference because this is all we knew. We we didn't know what white teachers were like. We didn't know what Hispanic teachers were like. We didn't know what any other racial group. We only knew what black teachers were like. And we, looking back, going through it, we, we many of us succeeded. Many of us uh, exceeded those expectations that some people had. Some people had very low expectations for us. We knew that we were given outdated uh, textbooks. Uh, and we knew that because in the inside cover where the names of the the student who had that book for that year, it had that that card was completely filled, and the books were, were tattered and torn, and they were shipped over to the black kids. And when the white kids got updated books, uh, that's when we got their books. So all of those efforts, I think, were intentional to try to keep us as second-class citizens. To keep us, they thought we were getting an inferior education, but. They just didn't understand the the spirit and the determination of our black teachers that, no, you're not going to get an inferior education. You're not going to even consider yourself as an inferior being. You're going to excel. You're going to compete. And you're going to do what you need to do to be that, be that next generation of, of black people who come along and... Uh, do better than the generation before them and, and try to expect the next generation to do better than your generation. So that was sort of the charge we had. And 
I left the sixth grade and went to uh, seventh grade at Lily Burney Junior High School. And that was a fairly new junior high school, the black high school. I, I'm sorry, junior high school, Lily Burney Junior High School. And I had a lot of fun there. I was there for only one year, and I was in the band. Mr. Holly was our band director, and I just remember trying to learn to play the saxophone. I think I started out wanting to play the trumpet or something, but ended up playing the saxophone. And it was just a really, really wonderful seventh grade year. My first first through the seventh grade, those were, were in black schools, and I learned so much and appreciated so much. At the time, I didn't know what I was, uh, what value and benefit all of that was. But as I became older, as I became, as I matriculated through the grades and into college, I could look back on and say, yeah, I get it. I know exactly what they're trying to do now. So I, I desegregated uh, Thames Junior High in, in 1966, and uh, along with uh, four other black students, um, Aldrich Clark, Belisa Clark, uh, James Hicks, Benton Dwight, and myself. We showed up on um, at Tim's Junior High. We were about to do something that hadn't been done at that particular school anyway. We were about to desegregate the school system there. And that was a... And we had so many crazy things to happen to us there at Tim's Junior High. One of the things that happened with me was... And it's, I've shared this story many times, so forgive me if you've heard this story before. I was walking to class one day, just minding my own business, I wasn't bothering anybody, wasn't harassing anybody, wasn't doing anything to um, to make myself um, stand out in any kind of way. I was just going to class. And as I walked past my one of my white classmates, he just hauled off and spat on me. And he was aiming for my face, but the spittle landed on my pant leg. And as I turned around to see who it was, um, his friends, his, his buddies, they were uh, taunting and jeering and, and just wanting me to do something. They wanted me to come back and, and, and retaliate against uh, this guy. And I refused to do it. Uh, I asked young people today, what would you have done had that been you who was spat on? Of course, you, you, you know what many would would do. They said I'd go back and hit him, I'd go back and spit on him, and I would just, we would just, just have it out. And I said, you know, I, what I did was I walked to the nearest restroom, got a paper towel, and wiped my pant leg off. But every step I made to that restroom, I had to fight the urge to do exactly what some say they would do, and many say they would do. I had to fight the urge to go back and hit this guy. Because to to be spat on like that is, that's that's so... It's so nasty, it's so insulting, it's so degrading, it's so dehumanizing for someone to do that and for his buddies to stand around uh, jeering and taunting and wanting me to, they wanted to see a fight. But I, I, I did what I needed to do because there were two things going on in my mind. One was, if I go back and hit this guy, we're going to get into a fight, no doubt about it. And don't know what the result of the fight would be, but I do know one of the results would have been, I would have been kicked out of school. I would have been transferred back to Lily Burney Junior High School. And within a week, the bigots, the racists would have figured out, here's how you make this an all-white school again. You just provoke black kids into a fight. And by Friday, um, we'll be back to being an all-white school again. But And we, we couldn't give in to that. We had to just, you know, 
we had to take a lot of stuff. We had to go through a lot of stuff. We had to endure a lot of stuff that, you know, quite honestly, kids today aren't going to go through and they're not going to endure it. And the other thing that kept me walking to that bathroom was something that uh, Dr. King had, uh, had preached many, many times. And I, 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 I took it very seriously and I internalized it and, and kind of patterned my life around this, this quote that he said. And, he, and it, it went something like this. If we continue this retaliatory eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, we're going to end up being a blind, toothless society. And, you know, you hit my, you knock my eye out, I knock your eye out. You knock my teeth out, I knock your teeth out. And what are we left with? You know, we, we, we're both blind. We can't eat corn on the cob. You know, what's the point of all of that? And that's something that Dr. King really stressed. He really emphasized throughout his, um, his term as a leader of the, not just a leader of the civil rights movement, but a leader in this country. And, and it's something that I, I took very seriously because, you know, I, I had to, again, keep two things in mind. What was going to happen if I went back and did what my instincts told me to do, my gut told me to do, which was to, to get it on with this guy. And, and the, I had to reconcile that with the notion that if I do this, I, I'm going to have defeated part of the, the effort in ending school segregation in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Now, maybe the guy who spat on me and got into the fight, maybe he would have gotten expelled too. Likely not. Maybe his friends would have gotten into trouble, but I, I think the bigots would have said, it's worth the sacrifice to sacrifice one white student or five white students to get these uh, five black kids out of school. And and we just had to think, we had to think smart. We had to, uh, it's not something that, Kids today, I expect them to to um, to embrace. When I share the story with young people, they they get very angry with me. I have some to to say things um, in a way that shows they did not understand what I was going through, didn't understand the the thought process, didn't understand the emotional um, dilemma that I was having when this was happening to me. And I just just hope and pray that as they get older, they can understand that. But I, I have one one good. Um, story to tell about that. Uh, I was sharing that story with a group of high school um, students in, in, in Commerce High School. My daughter was a senior in high school. I, I spoke to a group of, of kids, and one of the kids who was happened to be a, an athlete, really good athlete on the team, um, I shared that story about walking away from this confrontation with this white guy who spat on me. He came to me afterwards and he said, Dr. Harris, and it wasn't really after that event. It was actually a few days later. Uh, he, he saw me and he said, thank you for sharing that with me because when I, I walked away from a confrontation recently and because of what you went through and, and because of you of your doing what you did, I found the strength, and that's what it is. It takes strength to walk away from that. And he said, I, I just want to commend you and thank you for telling us about that, because had I not heard your story, I probably would have gotten into a fight with this person and maybe have gotten into trouble, gotten hurt, or hurt somebody else. So uh, I, I felt very, um, I felt affirmed, if you will, and, and felt that, boy, it was, that I have to tell that story, even though there are a lot of students who don't, who thought I did the wrong thing and walking away, but this is one student who, who really, it was able to change his, change his perspective and kept him from getting into trouble. 
Well, school segregation um, was, was the norm back then, and, and desegregation became something that was reluctantly agreed to by the administration in Hattiesburg. Um, they came up with this thing called freedom of choice. And freedom of choice meant that any student would have the freedom to choose the school that they wanted to attend. And the theory was that you could just go to any school you want to. Black kids could go to white schools and white kids could go to black schools. Well, that did not happen. What was going on was that black kids were going to white schools, but white kids were not coming to black schools. And the federal government, the Justice Department, said that there had, there had to be racial balance in the schools. And you couldn't have these segregated as separate but equal uh, school systems. And so that, that freedom of choice strategy just didn't pan out too well. And about 1970, uh, the city of Hattiesburg and, and the school district in Hattiesburg came up with this new plan. It was more of a neighborhood strategy. They drew a line in the sand, and this pertained primarily to the high school. They drew a line on a map and said that everyone on this side of, the, of this line will attend Blair High School, which was the white high school, and those on the other side would attend Rowan High School, which was the black high school. And I lived uh, very close to Rowan High School. I had gone to S.H. Blair for two years, 10th and 11th grade, but my senior year is when this new plan came into effect. I was, my senior year was 1970 to 71, and that's where I graduated from, Rowan High School in 1971, the last class to graduate from, from Rowan High School. But, but here's the, the thing that, that I like to keep in mind, like to share with people, is that even though the, the school administration said, yeah, we will embrace school desegregation, and I call it desegregation, not integration, but, but desegregation, we will do that, but, but in a very sinister way, in a very cynical way, they... They said, we will maintain control. We will maintain leadership. We will not share control. We will not share leadership. We, as a white administration, the school board was entirely white. The administration was entirely white. And they, they said, okay, the government says we have to desegregate, but we're not going to give up any power here. We're going to still maintain uh, the power we had before that. And one of the examples of that power, and, and in fact, they kept control of things, was the when my school, Rowan High School, uh, we graduated in 71, the last class to graduate from that school. They merged the schools the next year. And what the, the administration did was they began to systematically relegate the status and, and visibility and viability of some of our black teachers from Rowan High School. A good example is Coach Ed Steele was one of the winningest, winningest, if not the winningest, uh, football coach in the, coaches in the state of Mississippi. And when the schools merged, Blair High School and Rowan High School, and they named it Hattiesburg High School after that, um, you would think they would just be chomping at the bit to hire and move Ed Steele into the position of head coach. But no, Jim Crowism was still entrenched in this town. And this, this sinister... A strategy and thinking on that part that we're going to maintain control. We're going to keep our people in positions of power and visibility and so forth. The uh, the the coach 
became, you know, they kept the white coach as as the head coach, and, and Coach Steele was relegated to a position called Director of Recreation, something like that, that was way, way beneath his his skills and his um, his acumen. He, he was, it was just really insulting. So uh, our band director, Ed Rowan, became the assistant band director at uh, at the new high school, the, 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 um, the now desegregated high school. So what, what is all of this about? Uh, it, it, this is something that happened back in the 60s, and, but I think there are some, the legacy of that still continues. I think that's a part of our history that we don't talk about enough. We don't talk about what went on during the 60s, both in, in education and in the community. And, and that's one of the things that those who are opposed to what they call critical race theory, that's one of the things they don't want you to hear about. They don't want you to know about some of the, the things that went on during the 60s. And, and, I, and part of critical race theory says that what went on in the 60s didn't start in the 60s. It started in 1619. And you can trace back from any point and go back to all these things that happened between 1619 and the present time, you can see that systemic racism uh, helped build this country, systemic racism and white supremacy, uh, maintain privilege for whites in this country, and that continues today. And for those who are lambasting and, and, and just being very, uh, I think in a very ignorant kind of way, being critical of critical race theory, they're, they're doing it because they just don't know anything about it. They don't understand it. It's become, uh, it's become a boogeyman. It's become the latest um, symbol, if you will, of something that they believe is a threat to them and to their kids. I talked last time about Reconstruction was a symbol that, that whites had to get rid of because it was going to, uh, it had the promise of, of, of giving black people rights and we can't, they couldn't have that. So they came up with this thing called the Ku Klux Klan and and the massacres and the violence and all of those things. And, and then you, you, you just, you know, during the civil rights movement, you know, we had uh, uh, that, the backlash against that. You know, they said integration. No, integration is a threat to us. We can't, we can't have that. We have to fight against that. So they fought against it and, and, and continue to fight against it. And, and Black Lives Matter. They see that as a as symbolic of something that's a threat to them, and it is not a threat to them. And and they're doing black lives, uh, doing critical race theory in the same way, to use it as something that it isn't, to intentionally mischaracterize it, intentionally provide, um, give misinformation about it. And and we know that there are gullible people out there who will not take the time to do their own research and find out what critical race theory is. They will listen to Fox News. They will listen to those uh, right-wing uh, segregationists and the um, politicians, and that's what they'll believe. They're not going to do it. They're not going to do their own research because it fits a narrative for them. It fits the narrative that um, white people in this country are threatened, that white people in this country uh, are about to lose their power, are in danger of losing their power and their status, and we have to draw a line here and keep uh, these um, these symbols, and I'll just call them that, like critical race theory, as they did with integration and and uh, and reconstruction uh, in past um, generations. So that's where we are. Uh, I just 
just think we need to be continue to be vigilant as people continue to um, mischaracterize and misunderstand intentionally what critical race theory is about. And I wanted to share the segregation of Mississippi uh, because that's my story to tell. That and everybody has a story to tell. And part of critical race theory is that we must tell our own stories. We must let people know of the connections between what we've gone through and what our ancestors went through and what their ancestors went through. So as we move forward, uh, future generations can uh, look and see, you know, is, what is what's happening to me part of what's happened to my ancestors? And they can see that where the dots are being connected. And if you don't see where the dots are being connected, you cannot unconnect those dots. So you, you have to uh, understand as painful it is, as it may be for some people, um, it's something that must be done. If we're going to have true equality in this country and not just have it as something that we, we pledge allegiance to as liberty and justice for all, and, and if we're going to truly stand up and, and salute the flag and do all those um, patriotic things, we have to be true to ourselves, and sometimes the truth is uh, is inconvenient. Sometimes it's it's hurtful. Sometimes it's um, it's not something we always want to hear, but it's something that we need to hear. And if, if we need to hear, it because we we can't just continue to um, propagate these lies and 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 bury things under the the rugs just because there's a group of people who feel uncomfortable in hearing the truth. Um, you know, that saying goes, the truth shall set you free. It's, it's true uh, in, in, in biblical times, and it's true in today's time. Well, that's all I have for today. I'm, I'm just uh, delighted that still being able to do this. I, my book came out uh, yesterday, and I promise you I'm going to give you some details on Leading While Black. Um, that's a, I think it's going to be a thought-provoking book, and um, it's not quite... I have my copies of it, but they're working on the e-version of it, and they're going to release it to Amazon and Barnes and Nobles all at the same time. So I'm waiting on that to get done. And I'm and my other book is um, More Adventures of Little Mikey, and and that's a, a, a children's book. It's a chapter book for kids, and the main audience of that target audience of that is uh, are boys. And I'll talk more about that perhaps next time. Anyway, I hope everybody. Has a great rest of the week, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye.